This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to episode 272 of Mason Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Mason Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us. We are happy to be back after our ARG episode. And then uh, I lost power for a couple days because of the storm and a number of other things kept us from recording. But we are back. And first up, Chris McShann and I answer your emails, talk about the UNSS Pittis injury, the uh, pitching competition in spring training. And Chris's trip to St. Lucie. So here we go. Well, Chris, it's been a little while, but uh, not all that much is new in Metsville. You know, last time we talked, they had signed Jason Vargas. Uh, there has not been a, a major signing since then. Uh, spring training is more than halfway underway. Spring uh, Opening day is two weeks from today, the day we are recording this. Uh, the 29th of March is the, the first game of the season. And uh, it's been a, a relatively uneventful camp in a good way so far but sort of the big the big news here is that you know Yuena Cespedes has been dealing with a a sore right wrist now that might not seem like 
a huge deal. But, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The the Mets medical staff has handled this in a truly perplexing way, in a way that can only be described as Metsian. This seems yeah. like the most Mets <laughs> way they could handle this injury. You know, uh, supposedly Cespedes first tweaked it over a week ago. It was a week ago from Tuesday. And they knew about it. He played in three more games. They gave him a cortisone shot. He was talking about it to the press, and they cut off the interview within 90 seconds. It just just handled really, really poorly. So, with that, you know, without getting super hyperbolic about this, are you at all concerned about this injury? And more than that, why the hell would the Mets handle it this way? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's something that's just kind of puzzling you know they have hyped up a lot of what they've supposedly changed um we know they've hired people to be you know overseeing this sort of stuff and it's nice uh to hear that that's something that they want to do organizationally from top to bottom but you know i would think the uh the most attention should be paid to i'm going to say the half dozen players who your team is most reliant upon right uh, you know, and it's, it's just, it seems exactly like the way things would go with an injury, uh, in last, you know, last year, last two years, however long it goes. And, you know, I, I just don't know, <laughs> I don't know how you go on your sports network that you, your team basically owns, um, and, and do this pitch and bring on your, you know, your head of, uh, well, I forget the title, but the the guy who's in charge of all the health stuff, the new guy, uh, you bring him on and and Barwis and you know have them talk about all this stuff and it, okay, sure, it sounds great, um, but w- what does it mean if you know a couple of weeks in his spring training, your marquee player? Um, I, I I still think over the course of this whole season. Michael Conforto's health is probably the most important thing, but that's not taking Cespedes for granted. Uh, I think they both have to be. So to have a guy like that, uh, you know, nobody's disputed that he said something and then he kept playing in games. Um, and then, you know, now he's on the shelf with the cortisone shot. Uh, and then, you, you know, you top it off with, and, and granted, I didn't hear audio of it, but the exchange—I think it was Tim Britton of the Athletic, or or it was Tim Healy of Newsday. Going to confuse them a lot uh, this year, uh, just because of the the Tim thing. But one, one of them had posted an exchange, uh, you know, from the press conference that Mickey Callaway had uh, following the Cespedes update, and it sounded like he got a little snippy, you know. Uh, they asked about kind of background on it and what happened and all that. And, you know, it, it, third or fourth question in, uh, he just referred to, you know, oh, what did it, what did it say in the injury report? And, uh, okay. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. That's why we have doctors, which, um, I don't know. Not great. <laughs> no, I, the thing that really just perplexes me is, there was this narrative at the beginning of spring training that all these Mets players were injured, and our friend Ted Berg wrote a, a piece at, for For the Win about how 
maybe this is the Mets being especially transparent. That after all these years, maybe they're being extra careful and extra transparent. And it's just spring training and people get hurt. And I thought Ted did a nice job with the piece, as Ted often does. Um, But the sort of underlying theme of it was that it doesn't hurt to be precaution to take extra precaution in spring training, right? These games don't matter. I think position players especially agree that spring training is way too long. So, you know, if you're going to have a player who's a little bit banged up, it's always better to let him sit, get rest, and then just, you know, come back to the, come back to the, the Grapefruit League games when he's feeling better because ultimately who cares? That seems to be in stark contrast with the way this was handled. This was almost handled like if Cespedes had hurt his wrist during a playoff run, where right. you want him to keep playing through the pain because they need him to play. What difference does it make in any capacity if he played in those three games or not? Nothing. Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. It's so bizarre to me. It seems like it's the polar opposite of how you would want your team to handle this exact injury. I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh it's a very strange situation. I'm also realizing I think this is the first podcast since I went down to uh spring training. It is. <laughs> Partly because of power outages. Uh, yeah, in, in, in... I, I had no power for three days last week, so that, that uh that put yeah. and everything. Yeah, basically uh we took a week off as a result and hey, uh, you know, uh, nothing wrong with that <laughs> nature and uh and it's and the, the off season. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that all it intervened, but um, you know, coming out of there, it seemed pretty ho hum. Uh, I think the Cespedes wrist thing is probably the biggest deal, uh, injury wise. You know, even the other stuff has been relatively minor. Um, you know, everything with Degrom's back seemed to be handled pretty well. Uh, you know, uh, Dom Smith has his leg issue. Not something that's putting a season in peril, but certainly I, I think at this point has already ended his shot of making the opening day roster, uh, if he had one in the first place. Although Adrian uh, Gonzalez certainly hasn't been hitting the cover off the ball either. No, no, but the, he, he volunteered to play in some minor league games and tore the cover off the ball there, so yeah. <laughs> that's encouraging. Um, but, you know, overall it seemed, and I was only down there for three days, but it seemed just pretty routine, no catastrophes, um, you know, that that's basically what they need to happen. Um, and, you know, no major noticeable difference in terms of, uh, you know, tone or, or, or the way things were operating. I know Mickey Calloway is running a, a you know, maybe a little more condensed uh, camp, but... You know, it's, it was interesting being out there where you've got, um, you know, sort of mixing about, uh, obviously, Callaway, all the players who are who are currently in the organization uh, and had reported at the time. And then, uh, you know, Fred Wilpon is there. Terry Collins is there. Omar Minaya is there. Um, you know, it, it like it's just sort of uh, when you see it all and observe it that way, it's just a group of um uh, like my entire adult Mets fandom. Say, uh, a group just... of grievances, of walking living grievances. But uh but yeah, that that's my spring training report. As usual, uh, the, the the highlights were 
uh, some of them in the, in the lunchroom, um, can't be repeated, <laughs> uh, you know, but just, just fun stuff, nothing terrible. Uh, but was there any player that you saw that impressed you more than you thought would, you know, somebody that really came away saying, wow, that guy looks great. Um, so I, I don't want to spoil too much or maybe we can just segue right into the email, but, uh, and I, I might be a little bit biased because, uh, I, I actually wound up meeting his parents, <laughs> but Luis Guillorme, uh, that there was a evening game while I was down there and the Mets were at the Astros complex and, uh, he worked a great at bat and, you know, wins and losses of spring training games don't matter, but in the context of being in a game, uh, and being at the level he's at where he's trying to prove himself and make his, you know, major league debut, uh, he worked a really great at bat. Uh, I think he had fallen behind, worked the count, fouled off some pitches and then just smoked a double, uh, the opposite way into the gap, uh, and scored, I think two runs, you know, whatever, whatever the case it was, uh, it was a really fine piece of hitting, uh, and he turned or started the the uh, turn of a very smooth double play. He made an error in that game too, which is rare for him. But uh, but yeah, it, it's somebody who's been talked about and written about previously on on the site uh, and on the podcast going back for a, a while now, I think. Um, but there was just somebody who kind of caught my eye as. You know, in years past, he could put on a show sometimes in batting practice. If he's finally putting that stuff together in games, then he is probably your best bet uh, as an everyday second baseman. That you know, there's a lot to prove to get to that point. But if he does do that, then uh, you know that that's a very interesting guy. And, and that's certainly, I mean, I, I think folks were high on him, but when you hear when you heard people talk about the Mets system or talk about players that are maybe on the horizon, on the bubble, I don't think anybody was talking about Guillaume as a short bet. So to hear a couple people, not just you, talk about how impressive he's been this spring and to see it in a few games I've been able to watch, it's it's really a nice thing. and It gives a little bit of hope to some things later in the season if the Mets are not in contention. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, even if they are, uh, if injuries go the way that they sometimes do, um, and and we'll also touch on the first base situation in, in a minute here, but uh, you know the there's a chance that you end up with your second base depth playing multiple other positions, or you know whether it's Flores at first or Cabrera maybe playing at third. I'm not saying Todd Frazier has been a pretty durable guy, uh, but you never know. Right. You know that like. At the moment, the Mets have plenty of infielders who can cover second and third. I would argue they don't really have plenty who can cover short, other you know, other than Guillaume and Rosario. Um, and then first base is somewhat of a all-or-nothing proposition. Uh, but you know, if you wind up with Flores at first and Cabrera uh, at third and Reyes at second, then all of a sudden, you know you might be in a spot where uh, Guillaume would be a clear upgrade in terms of his overall game. So, Yeah. We'll get to him more in a, in a few minutes with the email. Yeah. one And one other guy, uh, if I may. Of course. Uh, so I've 
pronunciation wise, I'll go with what they've been saying on the broadcast. Curson. Uh, I was saying it Herson. Uh, I don't know what he says himself, but we'll go with what they've said, uh, you know, on the broadcast Curson Bautista, one of the guys who came over in the Addison Reed trade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the trip can be a little bit of a whirlwind for me. I'm, I'm you know, primarily shooting photos, occasionally talking to people, uh, for things for the site. And then, you know, especially in a condensed trip like this, there's not a whole lot of time that I get to just sit and just watch, um, you know, cause when you shoot a photo of somebody pitching, it's great, uh, you know, and, and serves a purpose and you get to look at that after, but you don't really get to, you know, take in what they're doing and how it looks. So Bautista in that same evening game, uh, he, he impressed me, you know, he's a hard thrower. He doesn't have all that much effort to throw as hard as he does, you know, he can hit the upper nineties. Um, and then, you know, looking at other reports on him, the slider can be good or sometimes not so much. And I thought that night it was good. Uh, you know, uh, at the stage he was in the game, it might have not have been the World Series lineup for the Astros, but it wasn't like they had nobody's out there. Right. Uh, and, and he he impressed me too. Uh, so, I mean, it's easy to fall in love with a reliever who can, you know, hit 98, 99, 100. Um so, you know, maybe he just is another one of those guys. But I saw enough that, you know, if things aren't going well or if there's a starting pitcher or two injured and Gazelman and Lugo and Mats and Wheeler all have, you know, rotation spots or, or whatever, um, and they need bullpen arms, he's one that caught my eye a little bit. Um, you know, Jacob Ram, I think, has got enough attention that – and other projections of the roster people are including them not as a given um but maybe a little bit more of a well-known entity at this point yeah that sounds about right to me um well before we move uh, into our emails we do want to talk for a second about the uh, the rotation as it's currently constructed so you know, as as everybody is aware there there are seven or eight guys who are competing for five spots it appears at this point like the the three locks, sorry, the four locks rather are, um, you know, uh, Jacob Degrom, Noah Syndergaard, Matt Harvey, who struck out eight today and uh, had a rough uh, third inning, but went five innings, uh, struck out eight, including five in a row, um, and Jason Vargas as the four sort of set in stone parts of the rotation with Robert Gazelman, Seth Lugo, Zach Wheeler, and Steven Matz as the sort of four men fighting for the last spot. Um, this is not necessarily news. I think that the the sort of makeup of the rotation has not drastically changed in terms of who people think will be making the team or not making the team since we spoke last. But do you have a, a sort of a, a feeling about this, a take on this, a, uh, you know, w- how are you feeling about the state of the rotation right now, Chris? Uh... I'd say slightly more comfortable than I was at the beginning of spring training only because nobody's been shut down. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, it is kind of funny. Uh, and I don't mean it to sound insulting. It's just, you know, that to me was the biggest fear with the rotation going in. And then the second is the effect and, uh, effectiveness of those pitchers. Um, 
you know, it's very much being painted as Harvey has a rotation spot and Madsen Wheeler are competing for the final one. Uh, that may be fine, but you know, and Harvey did, he only had one bad inning in that start today. Um, and by bad inning, really, he just gave up a couple of singles. There were there were no balls that were like smoked off of him either. It was all like right, reason, so, reasonably weak contact. Okay, well, fair enough. I didn't I didn't see it, but um, you know, the one thing you've seen is he's been able to get his velocity up early in his starts, and then and see it kind of drop back to like last year's levels uh, later in them. That is exactly what happened today. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I know you know had tweeted about it. Um, you know, it's kind of a. Uh, I don't expect all three of these guys to be fully healthy for an entire season. But in the current context that all three of them are, there's something intriguing about Harvey as a reliever. Um, you know, that just because of the velocity stuff, and I know it would probably be a nightmare to try to do it, uh, I don't expect any one of the three to take either a bullpen or minor league assignment very well. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be an easy move with any of them. So, uh, I don't even know who would be the, who would take that the best because I think all three of them are a bit outspoken and also a bit, uh, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of pride that you have when you're a highly touted prospect who then becomes a major league success and right. a certain ego involved. And I don't, I don't mean that negatively. I mean that just sort of matter of factly. And I can't see any of them looking at a bullpen assignment or a minor league assignment as being what they quote deserve. Um, I really don't know who would take it the best. Maybe Matt's. Yeah. He, he certainly has the least amount of track record. The show yeah that's true i mean i think if you're operating under the assumption that harvey has a rotation spot i think i lean slightly toward wheeler for that final spot right now um you know in a in a purely uh video game kind of world for lack of a better way of putting this you know if i had the ability to say you know hey steven master zach wheeler don't go full effort Go go, just hang out, and then when the other one of those two gets hurt, ramp it up, and we'll get you into that rotation spot. You know what? I, like if right, you could, yeah, th- yeah. that's not realistic. They're people; they're, it's their careers. Um, you know, it's just not the way it goes. But even last season, I remember thinking about the the Mets had Wheeler on a very uh, strict limit of innings, which he didn't even come close to anyway. Um, you know, but thinking about how do you deploy him and and you know, what do you do so he's available as the season goes on? Um, and, you know, it's just not – it's it's something that you could have a lot of fun with in, like, MLB The Show if you could control it and, you know, slot guys around and there's no emotions or, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, let's say grievances to be filed with the yeah. union. <laughs> but, but, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I will say Vargas is uh, – I still wish they had signed somebody better. But 1-2-3 being Syndergaard, DeGrom, Vargas, or you know, if you want to call it DeGrom the ace, but I'm just going the order that the, they're starting the season. Uh, you know, you can do a lot worse than that. 
Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm. I think cautiously optimistic might be putting it a little too well right now. <laughs> okay. But See, I, I'm, in, I caught, I'm encouraged that nobody's hurt yet, and yeah. there's you, you have the ability to have a very short leash. That if a guy gets rocked a couple times, you go, "Hey, we can't afford to have that happen if we're going to try to contend this year." Um, you know, let's we're going to give the ball to uh, Gazelman or Lugo or uh, you know one of the guys who's trying to crack the major league, uh, you know, roster. So. I, I caught a little bit of Wheeler's start the other day. This was, um, was it last night, two nights ago? It was on MLB Network. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think two. Yeah, some night this week, and I was just reminded of how many goddamn pitches he throws, and just you know, it seems like he's always behind the batter. It seems like he's always having six, seven balls fouled off per at bat. And I know that's an over exaggeration, but. It just, you know, on one hand, you think if he went to purely a fastball slider uh, mix of pitches, he'd be, a, he'd stuff-wise, he'd be a good reliever. You know, that would really play up in later innings. His velocity would probably tick up a little bit, which would help also. All that's good. But he would probably throw 35 pitches in his, in one inning of work. And at that point, are you going to be able to get him warmed up to the point where he can throw 35 pitches while getting three outs. You know, as opposed to you hope right. a relief pitcher can throw 35 pitches over two innings or two and a half or two and a third innings, something like that. You know, but what's what's it going to be like getting Wheeler to the place where he can be warmed up, where he can get three to five outs and not and not blow out his arm because he's coming from just because of his preparation. It is he's he's an odd pitcher to, to consider in that way, and so that that is both you know. His velocity and his stuff is both the best reason to put him in the bullpen, but the, the amount of pitches he throws is the worst reason to put him in the bullpen. I really, I just don't know. Um, the one name we haven't even mentioned, and it's a name that I think a lot of people had presumed would make the club out of the bullpen just because they're out of options, but is looking less and less likely every day, is Rafael Montero, who's just having a dreadful spring. Yeah. I mean, a, about as bad of a spring as you could hope for. Or not hope for, as you could fear. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, depending on, I think a lot of Mets Twitter might have been hoping uh, for. That is, that is very true. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's it's at a point where it would not be justifiable to say you're trying to win and take him on the roster. And I think the risk of losing him, you know, if you have to pass him through waivers, is not, it's not zero risk. But, you know, I'm not entirely sure another team takes him and puts him on the 40. Um, I mean, the back end of the Twins rotation might look better with Rafael Montero in it, but that that speaks more of the Twins. I'm just kind of trying to think of an example of a you know a team that might say, hey, we'll take this guy. Um, I know the Marlins are looking for maybe some back of the rotation help too, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if Montero is going to move the Yeah, and it's just one of those things that, you, you know, you've got people uh, – pre-worrying that uh, the Mets are going to let him go and he's going to turn into this, you know, solid number three. At least nobody's saying he's going to turn into like a Cy Young contender, but people right. are worrying, oh, 
you know, they're going to let him go and it's the right move. And like, I want him to, but then he's going to go somewhere else and he's going to be this, you know, valuable starting pitcher of of the pitching. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't see it, especially, I mean, you never know, um, when, when a guy's going to be in a situation that clicks for him, um, you know, whether it's finding the right hitting coach and, and getting, you know, that exact instruction that works for you. Um, but the Mets have developed pitchers, I'd say, extraordinarily well. You know, it's and it's not like he's a super outlier in terms of the stuff he throws. So you, you, you know, it's not Syndergaard velocity or anything, but, um, you know, it's not like he's some really strange outlier of a pitcher compared to what they've done and yeah i just don't see it i agree all right well, let's get to these emails you can uh, always email us podcast at amazing avenue audio.com um, let's start with talking about first base um matt from uh potomac maryland emailed in to say how long do you think the mets give adrian gonzalez if he struggles in spring training he is and there are other options available, there are, would it be best for Sandy to move on before those options are gone? What about some of the available free agents that aren't traditional first basemen? Even if Dom Smith blows everyone away in the next few weeks, it would be wise to have a strong backup if it's not going to break the bank. For instance, I would look at Neil Walker or Mike Moustakis uh, covering the bag if the price is right. Well, thank you for that email, Matt. By the time we read it on the air, both Walker and Moustakis are off the market. So those are not great. Uh, those are not going to happen right now. But Adam Lind was released a couple days ago. That was a name that was tied to the Mets earlier in the offseason. And, uh, you know, I think as long as the Mets have Gonzalez, you're not going to see Adam Lind in Queens. Um, and Gonzalez has struggled quite a bit this, this spring. He uh, especially, I have not seen him in a televised game in a few weeks, but Early on, he was really looking lost at the plate, just just flailing at things, and looked like his, some of his bat speed had had gone missing. And uh, you know, I, I think if this were another team, they would be much more likely to cut bait with him quickly. But as we've established on this show, the Mets trust their veteran players perhaps too much, and are, are far less likely to cut cut bait with a. Uh, with a veteran who's not performing than they are to give, you know, a, a youngster a shot. Um, so, obviously, Dom Smith has been hurt. Obviously, Dom Smith is is no one's, at least no one on this podcast's, like, ideal uh, first baseman for the Mets. But what would have to happen, Chris, do you think, for the Mets to, to get rid of Adrian Gonzalez sooner than later? Um, <clears throat> hmm. well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Jose Reyes had about a bad, a ha- as bad a half season as you could have, and they stuck with him. Um, Part of that I can write off to, he's a Mets legend. Yeah, no, 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 I know. Uh, but I think, I think Gonzalez would have to be about that bad. And the team would have to be good for him to just be released, you know? Yeah. Like, hey, things are going well. The The starting pitching has been healthier and more effective than everybody expected. 
um, you know, we're in the hunt, whatever, whether that's the wild card or, or the division, whatever the case, um, you know, let's say Daniel Murphy doesn't actually make it back for as long as Michael Conforto and, uh, you know, the, the playing field is a little, ev- you know, more even between those two teams and things have gone well and you're in the middle of June and Gonzalez is just stinking up the joint at the plate. Uh, Dom Smith maybe, you know, is doing well, but it's, is you know, still in the minors. Um, then I can maybe see it, but I would still be inclined to guess that they wouldn't do it. But I think that's what it would take, uh, you know, saying, Hey, it can't get worse than this. And we have to take this opportunity to compete. Yeah, I think he would essentially have to hit, you know, one thirty for three months. <laughs> and even uh, that, I don't know. Yeah, it's bizarre. It it, it really truly is. Um, I think that. See now, here's where it gets interesting. I don't think the Mets have the same level of investment or confidence in Smith that they have with somebody like Conforto. So let's say, for instance, that there's, you know, Sam Diff, a, a first-base prospect who the Mets are, are, are super, super high on, who everybody loves and wants to see hit the majors. If that was the case and they had Adrian Gonzalez signed, I would say, well, if Diff has this incredible April, May, and June, then by the All-Star break, you'll see him getting the majority of the playing time and Gonzalez will be right on the bench and will be, you know, possibly not even on a postseason roster or released before the postseason if the Mets are having a good season. But because there is this apprehension with Smith, whether that's, you know, warranted or not, whether it's because, you know, he has a predilection for showing up late or because he, you know, um, isn't your traditional first baseman in terms of power or, you know, there's this sort of... um, this narrative, again, whether deserved or not of him being lackadaisical or lazy or however you want to say it, because of all of that, I think that just buys into this Mets idea of veterans being the preferred type of player to begin with, because you're going to say, you know, there, it just seems like there are a thousand excuses for why they don't want Smith in particular playing first base for them right now. So I don't know if, I mean, I... I Look, the Mets are not going to sign another first baseman. They're not going to sign Adam Lind. They're not going to find you know a, a bargain out there and sign another first baseman. They're just not going to do it. Between Wilmer Flores and Adrian Gonzalez and Dom Smith and maybe even Todd Frazier, you're probably seeing all the players who are going to play first base for the Mets this season for any significant amount of time. Personally, I I was not for bringing in Gonzalez. I understand why it was done. I understand why financially it's not a terrible, terrible idea. But if Gonzalez is sticking up the joint and he's still getting the bulk of the playing time come June or July, it's going to be problematic for the Mets. So on a happier note... Yeah, yeah. Uh, on our second email of the week, uh, and this one was sent in to us by Mike from Corning. He said, living upstate, I had the pleasure of being able to catch several B-Mets slash Rumble Ponies games a year. One player that really impressed me last season was Luis Guillorme. As he continues to impress the spring, 
I'm pretty confused to hear repeatedly that baseball pundits and folks in the Mets front office aren't sold that he can be an everyday starting second baseman. What am I missing? He's got great plate discipline. He walks more than he strikes out. He's dazzling defensively. Good on the base pads. Makes hard contact. In fact, the only substantive knock I've heard on him is his lack of power. Well, so what? The past couple years we've seen baseball move away from the overvalued one-dimensional power hitters in favor of more well-rounded players. That's Luis Guillorme, a player who doesn't make outs of the plate and turns hits into outs in the field. It To me, that has just as much value as a two twenty batting average 35-homer guy, if not more. I realize he's going to start the season in Vegas, but as long as he continues to be the Luis Guillorme he has been, I think he should be chasing Cabrera off second after the All-Star break. Thanks, guys. Mike. Mikey, I'm sorry. Mikey from Corning. Um, do you disagree with anything he says? Uh, so the only thing I'll say, despite hyping up Bjorme already on this episode, is that I'm probably uh, on the higher end of Mets fans when it comes to perception of his dribble Cabrera uh, right. at this point. So, yeah, I... I, I I don't necessarily think it has to be A or B uh, in terms of chasing off Cabrera. Um, you know, if you're in an ideal situation where Cabrera could be, um, you know, pinch hitter extraordinaire, starting a few games per week, and Yorme starting over him, then, you know, I, I could get excited for that. I, I will say, you know, it's I – w- I completely understand, and I know the email – really like plays this out over the course of, you know, a few months and not opening day. Uh, I, I get it if he's not on the opening day roster. Um, but yeah, there should be some consideration, if, especially if anybody struggles. Um, you know, he, he should leapfrog Jose Reyes, I think, on the uh, infield depth chart at the very least. And, uh, yeah, it would be fun to see. It, you know, it's. Uh, I think we, especially like coming at baseball the way that I think Amazing Avenue generally has over the course of his existence, um, we've been in a spot to defend the low average, high power hitter just because it was, you know, uh, the fixation on batting average used to be such a, a big thing. And I, I just feel like so much has gotten a little more normalized in terms of that right. over the last few years. Um, I mean, it's one of the only reasons that I complain about like the Mets booth is that they're still focused on this battle. That's already, it's not even a battle anymore. It's not even like it's over or somebody won. It's just that there are all different components of how people analyze and understand baseball, you know? What what drives me crazy about that? Just sorry to go off on a slight. No, no, no. Go ahead. Is I I feel like for so many of the people, and this is definitely true of both Ron and Keith, who are ex players who are against sabermetrics, they're almost always the players for whom modern statistics would have shown even more of their value. Like if Keith Hernandez was playing today, there'd be no doubt in anyone's mind that he'd be the best defensive first baseman they ever saw. And his offensive skills, despite not being a home run hitter, would be even more greatly valued because the guy could take a walk. The guy could, you know, he's just he's an incredibly valuable player, and he would be lauded as as a superstar as he should be then or now. He was that good of a player, and yet they talk about this 
in a way where it's insulting to them and how they played the game. And that just couldn't be any further from the truth. Drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, I'm with you and coming at it from that angle, um, you know, that, that we traditionally have, uh, and maybe there's still a necessity to say that like a player like Lucas Duda is a proper noun. Good. (laughs) Um, you know, not that that doesn't still exist, but at the same time, I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, that there's, um, there's different ways to go about it and you can be a productive player, you know, whatever the value is that you provide. Uh, we know that this Mets front office doesn't value defense as much. They, you know, they value power. Um, they have valued on base percentage for a long time, but not feel that a team that's been particularly good at it. Um, you know, it's nice to say in a bubble that, uh, hey, we, we like guys who get on base. Okay, great. Uh, you know, who doesn't? Uh, but, you know, year in and year out, the Mets aren't usually really, you know, among the league leaders in on base percentage. Um, but, yeah, it's a it's a – interesting kind of player who i think could appeal to people who maybe are are you know fans of higher average fewer strikeouts good defense that kind of stuff but a guy who you know still realizes uh, what it is the front office's value and spent his off season you know uh bulking up a little bit and and working on hitting the ball in the air um you know, and and there's there's power there. Uh, you know, so even if you're a guy who plays good defense, doesn't hit for a great batting average, but you know, you're playing middle a middle infield position. Um, you know, say you can hit 15 home runs, play great defense, and be just decent and average and on base. That could be a very useful player. Absolutely. Um, Especially because I don't think the Mets are going to be necessarily hurting for home runs this year. If everybody's healthy. Between Jay Bruce and Todd Frazier and uh, Yuena Cespedes and Michael Conforto, there should be a fair amount of home runs hit by this team, right? And so, even Cabrera is capable of hitting them. And yeah. uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not buying that Plawecki will yet. But uh, even Darno last year, the overall offensive line wasn't great, but it, I think it was 16 home runs. Hold on, let's let's fact check myself on the podcast as I'd like to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was 16 home runs and 300-something plate appearances, if I have that Something correct. Something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah, 16 and 376. Uh, you know, with Darno, you, you really can't play the game of, oh, multiply that times two, and it's a 32-home run season because he's never right. really been healthy enough to you know to do that. But the rate at which he hit home runs was good. Um, a lot of other things weren't, but that particular part is good. So I'm just supporting your case with even that guy uh, right, yeah. is going to hit you home runs. You're, you're, you're going to have that power. So if you have, you know, Guillaume and Rosario in the middle of the infield playing above average defense and, you know, not being embarrassing at the plate. And Guillaume is certainly better than not embarrassing at the plate. I, I think there's room for that in this team. Yeah. And I mean, it's just it's exciting. Um you know, we all know what the opinions are about the state of the system right now. So to have a position player who who might be exciting, whether it works out or not, uh, might get a little extra attention right now. Absolutely. Uh, because, 
you know, I think I think he and then Pete Alonso, um, you know, not dismissing Dom Smith, but he's already very much in the conversation. So I'm just thinking position players um, who, you know, are coming off seasons that saw them do things that were significant in their minor league careers uh, and people could see and, and identify things and go, oh, okay, these are guys I'm going to watch. You know, maybe they're not top 100 prospects in all of baseball, but the, it's a guy that is in the organization of the team that I love to root for. And, and, you know, I'm going to latch on to these guys. The other guy that he's not quite a minor leaguer, not quite a major leaguer, uh, the tweener who's, who's going to be probably King of spring training this year is Brandon Nimmo, who, uh, mm. people have been really, really high on this spring. And, uh, I, I'm really fascinated to see what the Mets do with him this season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it, I think Linda wrote the piece, I think, uh, you know, essentially saying this is even really a competition. Uh, Nimmo is clearly winning the center field job to start the season over Ligaris. Mm-hmm. Um, and she laid it out nicely. If you haven't checked out that piece yet, um, you know, not not hard to find. Go, go check it out. Uh, she did a really good job with that, I thought. And, um, yeah, I... I He's he's an impressive guy in a certain way, and a guy who was written off and um, you know seen as an unorthodox pick. It'd be a lot of fun, not just to like root for the front office to have done well in their drafts, but um, it'd be a lot of fun to see the the Wyoming kid who, who didn't have high school baseball turn into you know a two or three win player at the major league level. To me, this mixed with the Dom Smith stuff just gives me further proof that Jay Bruce should be the everyday first baseman for the Mets this year. Yeah, yeah, and we can. I think we're previewing an agenda for uh, for next week at the at this point. But yeah. but yeah, no, that's uh, you know rotating things around a little bit, letting Conforto play right. Um, that at this point, two weeks away from opening day, I think my biggest spring training wish is aside from you know going out and getting a player or two who are still out there um to improve the team which i think at this point we know is not something they're going to do you've said this every time we've recorded and as soon as we do it they sign a player so keep saying it chris all right you're welcome greg holland is is a met by the time you've heard this (laughs) um so yeah but uh i Barring that sort of unforeseen acquisition, I would say the the thing I would like them to do the most with what they have in house uh, is get Bruce some reps at first base. Doesn't seem that hard. Don't really care if Adrian Gonzalez isn't totally happy about it. You know, he he knows what he got into. He's got to go out and prove that he's still a major league contributor uh, on a good team. Hopefully, this is a good team. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's. That should be – it should be in the mix because if Bruce can just not be awful at first base, and I think he's capable of that, um, you know, just not be awful and do his thing and, you know, hit a bunch of home runs and be a pretty decent overall hitter, um, great, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, Cespedes, Nimmo, Conforto, Bruce are all in the lineup every day. Uh that makes us all happy but we can we can delve into it even more uh next week i think that sounds like a plan to me
Steve Seiper, and I'm back to do some minor league stuff on the podcast. Uh, the season is going to be starting the minor league soon, so this week I want to go over what's going on in Binghamton and Las Vegas. So let's just look at the 51s first. Obviously, the biggest change of the season is that the coaching staff underwent a huge overhaul. Uh, Tony DiFrancesco is going to be replacing Pedro Lopez as the manager. Glenn Abbott is going to be replacing Frank Viola as the pitching coach. And Joel Chimelis is going to be replacing Jack Voigt as hitting coach. So, DiFrancesco, who is he? He uh, has some major coaching experience. He has some pretty serious coaching credentials. So I don't think that we have anything to worry about there. Uh, he's been managing in the PCL since 2003 with the Sacramento Rivercats and the Fresno Griffiths. And over those 14 years, he has eight division titles. He has 14 PCL championships. And he has two AAA championships, basically the way that AAA works. The PCL and the International League go head-to-head. And whichever representative of those two leagues wins, they get the AAA championship. I don't follow the Astros minor league system. I don't follow the Giants minor league system. Other than, you know, knowing top prospects, certain names, stuff like that. So I don't know details, specifics about DeFrancesco's coaching style, things like that. But it seems like the players are going to be in good hands just based on his resume. <clears throat> now, let's look at the actual players. Let's go over pitching first. Pitching has been a pretty major problem with the 51s over the last couple of years. And this year's probably going to be more of the same. Uh, last year, they had a collective ERA of 5.40, which is the worst in the PCL. And even though there's going to be a lot of turnover in 2018, I really don't think that the pitching situation is going to be much better. Obviously, rosters won't be fully set until the end of spring training, but of the five starters that pitched the majority of the innings last year, uh, only Ricky Knapp, I think, is going to be the only one to return. Tyler Pill, he signed with the Diamondbacks. And the other guys, Wilfredo Bascon, Donovan Hand, Mitch Atkins, they're all free agents and they're unlikely to sign with the team, especially right now. So the rest of the staff is probably going to be rounded out by A.J. Griffin, who the Mets signed a little bit earlier, a couple of weeks ago. Probably Chris Flexen, probably Corey Oswald, and probably Rafael Montero. Flexen I'm high on, you know, even though he had a pretty bad Major League debut I don't think that he's going to be half bad in Las Vegas. I don't think he's going to be half bad at the major league level once he returns in whatever capacity he does. And Oswald has a heavy fastball, so hopefully that negates you know the, the, the long ball issues that a lot of pitchers in the PCL have. But Griffin, Montero, and Knapp, you're really not getting much from those guys. So maybe the collective ERA will be better than it was last season, but I don't think it's going to be much better overall. Hitting, um, that wasn't something that the 51s really had an issue with last year, <clears throat> being the PCL and all, of course. But they also had Ahmed Rosario and Dom Smith having a pretty good season. And I think that this upcoming season, they're not going to be as good with the offense. Uh, the most likely infield configuration is probably Dom Smith at first, some combination of Ty Kelly, Jeff McNeil, Phil Evans at second, uh, Luis Guillorme at short, David Thompson at third, and I guess Jose Lobatone catching. In the outfield, it's probably going to be Matt Decker, who the Mets recently re-signed. He'll probably get the bulk of the time in center field. 
Kevin Kosmarski should get a promotion up to AAA and right field. And I guess Jace Boyd and Wilmer Becerra will see time in left. And all in all, that kind of looks like a downgrade in terms of offense. Pitching, like I said, it's probably not going to be... It's probably going to be a little better than last year, but probably still not that great, at least to start. So uh, we'll see what kind of start the DiFrancesco era gets off to, but as it is, it's not looking too good. Looking at Binghamton now, uh, Louis Rojas will be returning for a second year with the Ponies, so there'll be continuity there, and Val Pascucci will also be returning, so again, there'll be some continuity. Glenn Abbott, though... He will not be returning. He got moved up to Las Vegas. Replacing him will be Frank Viola, who will be moving down from Las Vegas. So basically the two pitching coaches are just going to be swapping jobs. And no offense to Glenn Abbott, but we've heard so much good about Viola and all of the work that he does with the pitchers. So hopefully he does some of his magic and the staff in Binghamton have monster years. So let's see who's probably going to end up in Binghamton to start the year at least. One guy I think is going to be Marcos Molina. I know he pitched with the Rumble Ponies last year, but I think he repeats Binghamton. His prospect status is pretty low right now based on the stuff that we, you know, as amateurs see. So I'm sure that the organization with even better and more specific data available to them, they see what we see. They know what we know. So it's not going to be a case of, you know, he's a guy where, we, where we're all low on him and the organization is high on him. No, I don't think so. But Binghamton, I think, will be a good place for Molina, to be honest. It'll give him more time to see if he could regain his fastball, and with his fastball, that prospect status, and kind of a no-major-pressure environment. And it'll give him a good coach to work with. Um, Mickey Janis is another guy that I think he's going to repeat in Binghamton, if just for the fact that the Las Vegas rotation, I think, is going to be a bit crowded to start the year. But, uh, we'll see. Uh, if I had to guess... I would say that Justin Dunn also joins them up in Binghamton. He didn't fare too well last year, but Binghamton, I think, again, kind of like Molina, will be a good place for him to just kind of work on what he needs to work on, and it'll give the organization time to really take stock of him and assess his future. Uh, you know, it's it's a kind of neutral pitching environment. He'll have a, a full year to rest up after pitching his first full season last year. He'll have a good pitching coach working with him. So I think a Binghamton will be a good place for Dunn to just kind of see where his future lies in the rotation, the bullpen, whatever. So rounding that group out, I think, will be Nabil Krismat and Andrew Church. And probably later on in the season, Harold joins them. Um, he only has a couple of innings in high A St. Lucie, so he could use some more seasoning down there. <clears throat> the offense now, let's look at them. Maybe it will be a little more exciting than the pitching uh, staff, but that's mostly because of Peter Alonso, who should be starting at first. After him, though, most of the infield is kind of up in the air. Um, Michael Piaz should should be promoted from St. Lucie, but instead of playing second, I think that maybe he'll be the main shortstop, just because there really isn't anyone else. Uh, Nick Sergakis, who got a lot of time in the outfield in St. Lucie last year, he's naturally an infielder by trade, so I think he gets promoted, and I think he gets brought back into the infield as a second baseman. Matt Oberste, he's kind of blocked uh, in Las Vegas, so I think that he might get left in Binghamton as a result, and he has a little experience playing third base, so he'll probably be the third baseman. And Patrick Mazaika, I think that he will be left in Binghamton. He only got into a couple of games last year there, and he's a solid bat, 
and I think he'll be getting most of the catching duties. But between his bat and Alonzo's bat, there is not much else aside to those two guys. And the outfield really isn't much better. There's Patrick Biondi, Champ Stewart, and some combination of Kevin Taylor and LJ Mazzilli. Really, all of those guys probably otherwise would get promoted to Las Vegas just based on their age, service time, and that kind of baseball social graduation or whatever you want to call it, where guys that put in their dues, they keep climbing the ladder until they really just can't handle it anymore. But they all underachieved last season. St. Lucie really doesn't have any outfielders that are forcing their way up to double A, at least to start the season. And none of those guys are really in consideration, I don't think, for a starting role in Las Vegas outfield. So those are the most likely names, I guess, for the double A Binghamton outfield. The organization signed a few minor leaguers and a few minor league free agents last season and assigned them to Binghamton. There was Gio Meyer, there's Gustavo Nunez, and Cody Decker, who, as an aside of everything, is a pretty cool dude. And I wish that they re-signed him again, but uh, they didn't. But honestly, with the way the team is probably going to be, and uh, they might need to sign some more stop guys like guys, stopgap guys like that. While the players down in, in St. Lucie mature until, you know, somewhere around the midway point or even 2019. So it's probably going to be another uncompelling season in the upper levels of the minor league. But um, there's some interesting stuff happening down in St. Lucie in Columbia. And I'll be back next week to talk about that. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for joining us. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can check out all of our spring training coverage, our season preview pieces, and everything else we are getting set for the regular season. And we hope you're with us the whole season. We appreciate you checking out the podcast and the site. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. You can email us, podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. We would love to answer your questions. We have a lot of fun with the emails, so please send those in. You can download this show from Block Talk Radio. You can download it from iTunes, from Apple Podcasts, rather. Download it from Stitcher or your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us out quite a bit. And you can follow all of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Got to throw a shout-out here to our friend, the green man, Steve Schreiber. He was on the show last time. Since then and now... He's been hired by uh, the Kansas City Royals to do some of their social media stuff. So congratulations, Steve. We're going to miss you around these parts. Uh, Long live the green man. And until next time, let's go Mets.